Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I will never forget my first horror film. I was probably seven or eight, spending the night at a friend's house down the street. She pressed a tape into the VHS player, a movie her dad had rented from the 48-hour video store that I'm pretty sure we weren't meant to be watching. We hit play, and for the next two hours, we sat, still as stone, taken in by the story of a house so haunted, nobody would make it out alive. The film was Burnt Offerings. I didn't sleep for weeks. It was only recently that I learned the house in the movie, the one that consumes its occupants, is lurking in the Oakland Hills. This is Boo Curious, your eerie tour of the San Francisco Bay Area. Today, we have a double feature for you. Part one takes you inside the Dunsmuir House, the dusty mansion at the center of several renowned horror films. Then we'll head to Hayward for a centuries-old legend of love, betrayal, and gruesome murder. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Now stay close. You don't want to get lost. (laughs) Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Hiding away in the East Bay Hills is a home that has haunted the imaginations of decades of moviegoers, myself included. KQED's Rachel Myro went to see what hides within its crumbling walls. The Dunsmuir Hellman Historic Estate sits on 50 landscaped acres just south of the Oakland Zoo. And as you walk up to the massive neoclassical revival mansion, painted a crisp, almost blinding white. Its looming immensity cuts a dramatic line against a backdrop of giant eucalyptus trees, and out in front, a vast, rolling green lawn. 
Three gigantic columns in front of the front door are so big, they appear to hold up the house. Scary? That depends on whether you've seen the movie Burnt Offerings. A young family found a beautiful old house. They thought it was the answer to their dreams, but it was the beginning of a nightmare. This 1976 horror movie starred a host of then-famous actors like Karen Black, Burgess Meredith, Oliver Reed, and Betty Davis in her final role. Burnt Offerings terrified generations with its tale of a possessed Victorian mansion that feeds on the life force of its guests, driving them mad or worse. In this old house, up this staircase, behind this locked door, Something lives, something strange, something powerful, something evil. Half a century later, Dunsmuir is locked up, the interior unavailable to the public unless you get a special tour like we did. You'd have to know what you were looking for to find the property tucked away inside a sleepy residential neighborhood just to the east of 580. <laughs> That looks like a torture device, not a shower. <laughs> Unlike other Victorian mansions that have been renovated or repurposed, the insides of Dunsmuir are frozen in time. The wallpaper is peeling from the ceiling upstairs and broken pieces of furniture sag onto the carpet in the nursery. The house is littered with old Christmas decorations from party preparations years ago. There are four floors from the basement on up, including everything you'd expect in a mansion, like a wine cellar and servants' quarters. The couple that built this place in 1899, the Dunsmuirs, barely lived in it. Alexander, the son of a Canadian coal baron, died on their honeymoon. Josephine died about a year later. Other families took up residence, like the Hillmans, but the 37 rooms were barely used before this estate was sold to the city of Oakland in the 1950s. In the years since, a nonprofit rented it out for weddings, concerts, and other events. But a giant house like this, it's a lot to take care of. <laughs> I don't know, with a house this size and, and only my wife, I don't know that we're going to... The house takes care of itself, Mr. Roth. Believe me. Historian Christopher Pollock wrote Real San Francisco Stories, an annotated filmography of the Bay Area. Dunsmuir appears several times in the book because Burnt Offerings was just the first of several horror movies shot here, at least in part. We have today here a, a piece of uh, preservation that happened by accident more than, than anything. But it helps set the stage for these movies that have been filmed here uh, and gives you kind of a creep factor. Dunsmuir wasn't the first or last Victorian to play the haunted house. There's been something about these aging mansions that haunt the recesses of our fevered imaginations, pretty much since they went out of fashion as living spaces in the late 1920s. Around the time of the Great Depression, People no longer wanted them. They were dark and dingy feeling to people. They rambled all over the place. All those dusty nooks and crannies, creaky wood floors, musty, moth-eaten carpets, and 
the spooky sense that people lived and died there before you walked in. So when a young filmmaker named Don Coscarelli saw Burnt Offerings in 1976, Dunsmuir struck him as the perfect place to film what would become a cult classic, Phantasm. Dunsmuir, used in the movie as Morningside Mortuary, is the setting for a story about an extra-dimensional grave robber, the Tall Man. <laughs> Boy! Fun fact, my dad co-wrote the music. When I, I met you, I must have been like 1920, and you yeah. were about five. Coscarelli grew up as I did in Southern California, where a certain cemetery holds a lot of the region's dead people. And there are striking visual similarities with Dunsmuir. Forest Lawn, which has this massive white neo-colonial mansion on a hill. After burnt offerings, Dunsmuir wouldn't let Coscarelli film inside for fear the shoot might cause more damage to an already crumbling house. And his movie's massive mausoleum, ostensibly inside the massive white mansion, was shot on a set in Hollywood. But Dunsmuir's exterior and the lawn outside effectively set the scene for Phantasm, which came out in 1979. We had a lot of action out there. You know, we had a uh, 1968 Cadillac hearse that had to speed across the grass at night. We had this other Plymouth muscle car that had to come racing out of the thing. And then um, the finale of Phantasm required this uh, cataclysmic uh, windstorm as basically the uh, dimensions were shifting. Whatever it is. If this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. Multiple films followed featuring Dunsmuir, including The Vineyard in 1989, So I Married an Axe Murder in 1993, and To Crime in 1999. But when tourists post videos on social media from Dunsmuir, they talk about burnt offerings and phantasm. Actually, a fan sent me a photo. They had their wedding at Dunsmuir, and I think they drove off in a hearse. So it comes full circle. Dunsmuir's notoriety in the movies helps goose the local special events business, run for the last year by the city of Oakland directly. Historian Chris Pollock thinks a little TLC, well, a lot really, could restore the mansion to the extent it might open the interior to the public, like Filoli does in Woodside. Not that there are any imminent plans, but one can hope, given that the Dunsmuir House is listed in the U.S. National Register of Historic Places. And I'm hoping that Oakland can find the funding in order to do some preservation on this house. Luckily, it's obviously just been repainted on the outside, so that's the most important thing, is, is to keep your shell dry, as we say in the architecture business. Come see the outside for yourself. It's a nice walk around the grounds during daytime. Or treat yourself to a spooky movie tonight. That was KQED's Rachel Myro. Next up, we're staying in the East Bay, but heading about 10 miles south to Hayward, where a story of bloody betrayal has been a part of community lore since before Hayward was even a city. It's called The Legend of Lone Tree. A Bay Curious listener wrote in asking about the story, and reporter Pauline Bartoloni got intrigued. 
This East Bay legend is something of a Romeo and Juliet story. Iterations of the tale have been appearing in newspapers and local history books for almost 150 years. Each account has its own flair with its own set of details, dates, names, even locations. But they all go a little something like this. It was in the spring of 1830. One warm summer morning, some four score years ago. There lived in Southern California a gentleman who had a bastard son. He was one for a father to be proud of, although compelled by adverse circumstances to a second place in caste or society. And who did this illegitimate son love? An aristocratic young Spanish woman. Don Pedro was blessed with a daughter whose appearance caused the admiration of all who knew her. None could excel her in the dance or song of the country. Their names? Juan and Isabel, at least in one retelling, and they were in love. Without the knowledge of the parents, the young people had plighted their troth and pledged unchanging love. The problem was, Isabel's father would never allow her marriage to an illegitimate man, and he promised his daughter to a Spaniard, So in the dark of night, with her arranged wedding imminent, Isabel and her lover escaped on horseback. When inquiry was made for the bride, she could nowhere be found. And it was discovered that the two swiftest horses were missing from the corral. The two lovers had abandoned home, family, and friends for each other. An elopement was, of course, understood. As the story goes, a chase ensues. Isabel's father tails the couple with his own band of horse-riding henchmen, and they make it all the way up to modern-day Hayward. In one version, they encounter an important figure in Hayward history, Guillermo Castro. He owned what is now Hayward and Castro Valley, and apparently, Senor Castro's was the place for any weary traveler. Guillermo Castro had his hacienda, and he was known for being incredibly hospitable. Caroline Sandoval with the Historical Society recounts the most recent adaptation of the tale. So this couple actually stopped to water their horses, get supplies, and to just get a little bit of rest. After they got what they needed, they were sent on their way, and uh, Mr. Castro started to notice that they were going in the direction of what was called the, the old lone tree. The old lone tree is an oak with winding, gnarly branches that would have stood out on an otherwise grassy hillside. Because it was one of the only ones of the trees in the areas, it would have been used as a landmark for people on the property. Hayward Public Library's Hector Villasenor is a local and first heard this tale as a child. So what happened was they went out to the lone tree and they didn't come back. And then in that meantime, somebody has stopped looking for the young couple. Older man. And an older gentleman. Don't really know his name, lost to history. And he asks about the direction of the couple. Have you seen the couple? Where is the couple? Representing himself to be the young woman's father. Saying that, you know, he needed to look for him to give him some important news. So they pointed him in a way to where the lone tree was. The father finally catches up to the young couple at the lone tree. This is where the newspaper writers of the late 19th century let their imaginations run amok. 
The pair dismounted and placed themselves side by side and calmly and anxiously awaited their doom. When the parties met, not a word was spoken. The stern Spanish Don Pascual approached his daughter and her lover, and his face gave evidence of the conflicting emotions. Scorn, pity, and rage were depicted, and his whole frame shook. The father, drawing his stiletto, sprang to her side and buried it in her heart. Plunged the cruel blade deeply into the bosom of his only child. She fell and died without a word of outcry, her blood staining his hands. Quickly, the daggers of his followers were struck into the body of the lover, who expired with scarcely a shudder. The bodies of the lovers were supposedly buried at the lone tree, or at least nearby, and a cemetery took root around them. Wow, dramatic. A Hayward twist on star-crossed love. I know, right? Okay, so do we know how much of the story is really true, or is it just a tall tale? Well, there are some puzzling discrepancies between the stories that make me doubt the tale. One version has the murder taking place in the late 1700s, another in the 1830s. The later versions play up Don Guillermo Castro's role in the whole ordeal, but he wasn't in the area until 1839 at the earliest. In one version, the lovers started their escape from Southern California in another, a coastal town in Mexico. Either way, that's a long way to go by horse. Lastly, one of the original trustees of Lone Tree Cemetery takes credit for writing and publishing the tale. He said the story was based on facts, but who knows what his embellishments were. I will say that Caroline Sandoval with the Historical Society agrees that there are some discrepancies, but she thinks the stories are too detailed to be a complete fabrication. True or not, why does a story like this keep getting told time and time and time and time again? Well, like any local legend, stories like this help us learn about history. And that's exactly what Sandoval says about Lone Tree. Such a huge population of people living in this area are not even native to the state. And so there's lots of ways that people are really kind of looking to connect to, you know, the space that they're moving into. And the easiest way to find history is to go to a cemetery. I, of course, ventured out to the Lone Tree for this story, which still stands today next to a small creek at the Lone Tree Cemetery. A headstone nearby dates it back to the 1700s. The tree's gnarly branches make it look wise. Whether or not young love was brutally stolen here, this tree has lived through decades of history. And its legend will no doubt continue to ignite people's imagination and give us all a story to share. Pauline Bartoloni, thank you. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. That's it for today's installment in our Boo Curious series. If you've been digging it, please share it with a friend. Or leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're gearing up for our next event in early November, a walking tour of the AIDS Memorial Grove in Golden Gate Park. 
featuring live dance, music, and a performance from the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I think it's going to be a unique way to connect with the Grove and learn about our history along the way. Tickets are limited. Get yours today at kqed.org live. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco by Amanda Font, Christopher Beal, and me, Olivia Allen Price. We got extra help this week from Brendan Willard and Pauline Bartoloni. Thanks also to Jen Chien, Katie Springer, Cesar Saldana, Maha Sanad, Holly Kernan, and the whole KQED family. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Have a spooky week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.